When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is The First 50, a podcast celebrating the human stories behind the first 50 years of women's athletics at Princeton. Here are your hosts, Ford Family Director of Athletics, Molly Marcusaman and Jerry Price. Hi, everyone. I'm Molly Marcusaman, the Ford Family Director of Athletics at Princeton. And I'd like to welcome you to the second episode of The First 50, a podcast series to celebrate the first 50 years of women's athletics at Princeton and the women who built a model intercollegiate athletic program. This series is about the power of athletics in transforming lives, building leaders, and building community. These will be the human stories behind our great women's athletics history. I'll be joined on these podcasts by Princeton's athletic historian, Jerry Price, who is also currently working on a book on the first 50 years of women's athletic history. Our podcast and Jerry's book are just a part of this great anniversary which we'd originally hoped would include many in-person celebrations, but will still be a phenomenal tribute to all of our great women athletes with speaker series events, social media content, and a ton of information on our webpage. So Jerry, welcome to our second podcast. How fun was our conversation with Margie Gengler-Smith and Helen Novakova? It was just amazing. Really enjoyed having them on, obviously the first two women who ever competed for Princeton. Uh, and it was right at the 50 year mark of when they had done that. So the timing of it was great. It was the, one of the best parts of it was just to see the way the two of them interacted together, uh, you know, bringing back uh, all of the years that they've known each other and then going all the way back to the beginning when they competed together. And it was just, it was really exciting to have them here. And it's a great starting point for our series. Today, we're joined by two more women who were been a huge part of the success of Princeton women's athletics through the years, but on a different level and the administrative level. Both of these women have spent a lifetime involved and supporting athletics for girls and women on all levels, 
And they both can speak not only to their own experiences, but also of the larger issue of the values that are taught through athletic participation and the evolution of sports for girls and women, starting with their own experiences as pre-Title IX athletes themselves. It's my privilege to welcome to the First 50 podcast two legends of Princeton Athletic Administration. We are joined today by the great Merrilee Dean Baker, who was hired in 1970 at the age of 27 to start the women's athletic program, and by the equally great Amy Campbell, who served as one of the top athletic administrators at Princeton from 1988 to 1999, before spending nearly seven years as the director of athletics at Bryn Mawr College. Amy returned to Princeton in 2006, working in campus life, and then university services as an assistant vice president until she retired in 2018. We're just really thrilled and honored to have both Marilee and Amy with us. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. Marilee, I don't know if you know this, but I have not been able to stop Jerry from talking about you since he visited you in, in Florida last winter. I was like, Jerry, I know she's cool. She's awesome. I get well, it. We got to get her on. We got to get her on the podcast. He's got to get a lot of stuff from Marilee. And, yeah, and Amy, right. you've been just such a terrific mentor and friend for me for over 30 years and someone who really helped shape my Princeton experience in round one as a student and definitely as round in round two as the athletic director. So thank you both for being with us here today. I'm going to start with Marilee. What is it about sports and women's sports in particular that has always fueled you? I mean, you've just been involved since the very beginning and just talk to us about what you're, how you're, why you're so passionate. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words. It's been, I can't even begin to tell you how exciting it is for me to see you doing what you're doing, Molly, um, at Princeton. It's, it's kind of like watching the dream grow and grow and grow. And the day you were hired, I was sitting in my, all alone in my house in Florida. I was yelling and cheering <laughs> and lifting up a glass and whatnot. So I, 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 was, I had butterflies. I got to tell you, you were dancing. I was, I was sweating. Oh, I bet you were. I, I've, been in, I've been in those shoes. I understand those sneakers can get pretty wet from sweat. <laughs> but at any rate, I started very early. Um, and I think part of my love emerged because uh, I was born in 1942 and my dad was off to war, didn't come home until my third birthday. And as a matter of fact, my sister was born the day before he left. She, he got to Red Cross, sent him home. He got to see her born and then he left. And um, so when he came home, he had been a three-year-old and, and a one-and-a-half-year-old and, a half year old and uh, didn't have any sons yet. My brother was born later, and my dad was an athlete. And so it was he who taught me the joys of running and throwing and catching a ball and, and romping through the waves and so forth and so on. So I was his son at that point, and he taught me all of those skills, and I just loved to do it. And um, that was how it was born. And, and in Back when I grew up in the 50s in school, there were no, there were not many sports for girls and women. Um, I was fortunate. I lived in a little pocket. Uh, uh, Amy, I laughed and she said, you were at Bryn Mawr. I was born in Bryn Mawr, uh, in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, in uh, a little suburban area of Philadelphia. And we did have a pocket of sports. So I was able to compete in swimming, uh, which I started doing when I was three. My dad coached me and taught me. And I began swimming competitively in about, when I was about eight. And in fifth grade, I played competitive school field hockey. So I had all of those experiences and I learned early. I developed a passion for it, knew I wanted to do it. Making college decisions, I wanted to teach and coach. That was as high as I aspired at that point in my life. And, but I also hit the social block of, you're going to do what? You're going to major in what? You're going where? And I really had to sort through that. And I fortunately had a family 
that was able to do that. I have an aunt and uncle who were Olympic gymnasts in the 36 Olympic Games, and then he coached at the Naval Academy. I had a grandmother who played Bloomingdale basketball. And so I, my love for, what, for sport was nurtured in my home, and that made all the difference in the world. So I went ahead and did what I wanted to do. Awesome. That is the key to success, as we learn all the time. You got to follow your passions. Amy, yes. a little bit of the same question to you. When and how did your passion for sports develop and how did you get into sports administration? So, you know, I, I'm a, a little bit younger than Marilee, not a lot, but a little bit. And so our experiences really are, are pretty well mirrored. Um, you know, when I grew up, there were no, um, I grew up in a, a suburb of Cleveland and there were no sports for, uh, for girls or women then uh, interscholastically. Um, we had a very robust intramural program. And, and what that meant is that anyone that was good at sports or liked it, we just hung out after school and whatever was in season, we played. And we continued that through the summer. I think the only real uh, competitive program we had was uh, some track and field in the summer and also uh, an outdoor swim program. And so um, one of the great, I mean, one of the good things about that kind of experience is, um, which is very different from today, um, is that there was no specialization because there was no opportunity to specialize, right? Um, if it was the fall, you played field hockey. If it was the spring, you yep. played uh, softball. If it was the winter, you played basketball. And, um, and that, but it was fun and I enjoyed it. Um, I knew that I really, um, I went to um, a small liberal arts school in Ohio and um, knew that I really wanted to stay in the field of, of sports and athletics. Um, partly because it, I knew that that, and I don't think I could articulate it at the time, but um, when I think back about it, it was the only place that women had a voice. It was the only place for us where we could work together as a team. And there was such a friendship bond there. And um, so um, in, in college, same thing. I played every sport. I mean, I remember trying out for the field hockey team and the coach said, and now this is back in 1971, right? As a freshman. And the coach said, does anyone, um, has anybody been a goalie? And I looked around at all the women at the tryouts and I thought, I'm never going to make this. I don't have much experience. And so I raised my hand and I said, sure, I'll play goalie. I mean, and so um, that was kind of what I did in sports. I kind of always raised my hand and step, stepped up and stepped into where there might be an opportunity or a void. And um, it was great. So I did a lot of coaching uh, and teaching um, at independent schools and then Connecticut College. Um, and then after that, I real at Con, I realized I really was intrigued by the administrative side because that's where problems were solved and where things could be made better for women athletes and coaches of women's programs. And so I came to Princeton in 1988 as the very first um, compliance director is how I started. And it was a fledgling field then. Um, the NCAA was just kind of figuring it out. We were figuring it out. Um, just one quick story there. Um, this was when the NCAA first initiated the quali SAT qualification scores. And I kept getting these letters because there was no email, letters back from the NCAA telling me they were rejecting a number of our athletes for qualification. So I had to pick up the phone and call them. And I would get this woman on the phone and she'd say, well, um, I'm looking at the scores and, and, and you had to have, a, I think, an 800 combined. And she said, you know, I'm looking at a, a 710. This person falls <laughs> below the average. And I said, okay, now look at the math score. What you're looking at is the English score. Now look at the math score. And 
you know, routinely you'd get these, um, we'd have these funny conversations, but it was a joy and a privilege to work in Princeton Athletics. And uh, Molly, thank you for pulling this podcast together. It's just great. Yeah, unfortunately, Amy, I don't think you were looking at my scores if those were, those were <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, Marilee, you know, we talked to Margie Genglishmith and Helena Novakova, as we said on our first podcast, so we know a little bit about those first days, but talk to us about your role as one of, not only obviously first female in the athletic department, but you're as a, one of the first female administrators at Princeton and what exactly you were tasked to do and what, what your role was. Oh, that's interesting. Um, my immediate task was to develop physical education and, and maybe in two or three years, inter, uh, inter, I mean, recreational sport, and maybe two or three years after that, we'd finally get to intercollegiate athletics. As a matter of fact, when I arrived, um, I was given a wonderful 100-page um, plan that had been developed by a, a, a committee at Princeton to prepare for the co-education of Princeton. And it was how to effectuate co-education uh, in the area of intercollegiate athletics. The five-year plan, it was a five-year plan. Uh, we completed it the first three weeks I was there. So <laughs> I was a little rudderless at that point. We kind of did it by the seat of our warm-up pants as, this, as everything arose. Um, I also was tasked with the responsibility of, as, as one of few women on the administrative Part of side of campus to handle any problems that arose from um, the start of co-education, things that they had forgotten, things that, that weren't working or whatever. There were two of us. There was in the dean's office and myself. And I, I will share a story with you because it's one of my favorite famous stories. Um, I, uh, I was located in the gym and in, in, in the field house and I was taken on a tour by John Conroy because the swimming pool was down in the bottom. And of course, uh, before co-education, the men didn't bother with swimming suits. So John Conroy had to stop at every corner and look around the corner before I could proceed to look at the next office or swimming pool or facility or what have you. We finally worked our way to the swimming pool. And at that time, swimming was required at Princeton. Everyone had to pass a swimming test to graduate. Um, I, I won't go into some stories about that, but there are some fascinating <laughs> stories about that as well. But at any rate, um, we walked into the complex of swimming and, and there were several ante rooms before you got into the pool. Um, there was a shower area. There was a, 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 a small area that had urinals on the walls and you finally wended your way into the pool. So I said to Ken Fairman and John Conroy, by the way, you need to get those urinals off the wall before the women arrive. Uh, that's not the way they're gonna go into the pool. And uh, I just said it as an aside. <laughs> And we first thing we did when the women got there, when, when all the students returned, was do was swimming tests. And about the second day, I was sitting in my office, and a young woman walked in my office who was probably all of five feet four inches tall, and and, and obviously very bright. And she said, "Miss Dean, uh, we were told if we had a problem with co-education that we should see you, and you could help us resolve it." And I knew what was coming. I just knew what was coming. But I said to her, "Oh, what's happening?" And she said, I just went to take my swim test and the foot baths are too high. <laughs> True story. I called Ken Fairman and I, I watched him through the telephone fall on the floor just about. <laughs> but the, when I talk about starting at a base level, base level, in 1970, we started at a base level. The day that Margie and Helena came into my office to see if they could um, 
represent Princeton at the Eastern Collegiate Tennis Championships was three weeks into the process. I didn't know either one of them. They didn't know me. They just walked in and they heard about this event. Could they participate? And I said, let me see what we can do. And I made some phone calls, got them enrolled, uh, went to the bookstore, bought two shirts that said Princeton on the front, went home and ironed their names on the back of them, called Eve Kraft and said, how would you like to take a drive up to New Paltz, New York? She took them up. Uh, I think you've probably heard the story. I mean, Margie won the singles, Helena won the doubles. Uh, one came in second, they won the doubles and they came home with a team trophy. And that was Princeton's first foray into intercollegiate athletics in October of 1970. Well, and then we were up and running. What was the, uh, the general attitude of the male administration there and also of the male athletes uh, from, from the people I've talked to, the women I've talked to, overwhelmingly positive with some hiccups along the way? I think that's absolutely true. And the hiccups didn't occur with the administrators and they didn't occur with the male student athletes. They occurred with alumni who graduated in the 50s, only in, during the decade of the 50s. And the other hiccups arose with some old time, old fashioned male coaches. Other than that, we had wonderful support, but I grew up a lot at Princeton and I thank Princeton for that. And, and part of the reason that I grew up is because I had to learn to be strong very early because I had a lot of women who were depending on me to serve them and, and provide for them what they needed to do. And I couldn't do that without being very firm with some people along the way. Yeah, and it sounds like both of you learned a lot about leadership and about, uh, Amy, as you said, you know, having to be flexible and put raise your hand to be the goalie or to be, um, you know, whatever you had to do within the athletic department. Um, can maybe, Amy, start with that, you know, just the lessons learned from athletics um, in your early years that helped you be a better administrator? Yeah, thanks. That's such a good question, Molly. Um, well, First of all, I don't think anyone does this alone. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. my way was paved because of all the wonderful work that Mary Lee did, right? I mean, even though she was not, we didn't overlap at Princeton, what I was able to do and what I walked into um, was there because of the framework that she put in. And, and then I would say the support of the, um, the alumni. And so, you know, I think the leadership, it's really about valuing what, people bring to the table, right? And, and you know, when you're a coach, you guys know this, right? You, you figure out what the, what a uh, student athlete's best skills are, what can they do? And you figure out where they're, where they need some help. And you try to support their weaknesses and you try to leverage their assets. And then you try to build a team together so that you're molding all the assets together. Um, and I think that's what you do as a, an administrator and as a leader, right? You take a look at the landscape, you, you figure out where, where you can leverage the positive things, who you, who you can help bring together and support you, and then where the challenges are, you, you look at how to problem solve those. So, um, and athletics does that. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about athletics and, and participating in sports because those lessons can be applied. Um, you know, the other thing, and I don't know, Molly, if you get to this, but about not doing this alone, you know, in the eighties and nineties, you know, we had some visionary athletic directors. Um, and certainly I think probably Marilee did the same thing, right? We, and you had athletic directors who knew how to hire exceptional coaches. And some of those coaches are still there today. 
and have been extraordinarily successful. Some have just recently retired. I mean, think of, you know, the Chris Saylors and the Susan uh, Teeters, the Lori Daphne, the Glenn Nelsons, Louise Ganglers, the Cindy Collins. I mean, there were uh, women that were just extraordinary uh, in terms of what they did. So the leadership was really, um, it, was a, it was a larger team. Um, it's, you don't do this by yourself. Yeah, awesome. Marilee, maybe talk a little bit about that, uh, expand on that, just in terms of you are young, you are one of uh, only a handful of, as we said, women, female administrators, and you had to be bold in the face of pretty strong people. And how did you muster up that braveness? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I probably, I, I think we all are the sum of our experiences and, and uh, the things that happen uh, around us or to us or because of us or whatever, Amy's absolutely right. It's you, you're never. It's not a solo journey. So you, you filter all these things in from every uh, experience you've had. Uh, two years before I came to Princeton, I had a very unusual experience. I was living and teaching in Istanbul, Turkey, and it was before I was married, and um, I was doing my world thing. And uh, at any rate, it was a it was a very different experience. While I was there, I had an opportunity presented to me that I took that was absolutely extraordinary. It was the most extraordinary athletic experience I ever had. It occurred a week before my 25th birthday. And although I had been cajoled into it, I swam from the continent of Asia to the continent of Europe across the Bosphorus Straits, which is not a huge body of water. It's not like the Atlantic or the Pacific, but it is, it's, it's a body of water that has a lot of currents. Uh, there's a current one on top that goes up towards Russia. There's one underneath that goes down to the Golden Horn and then all these cross currents. Can't do it without a boat and a crew, otherwise you'll drown. And um, so at any rate, I got, as I say, I got talked into doing this, but the net effect is that I almost didn't think I could finish it. It was the first time in my ex athletic experience that I, I did what the long distance runners refer to as hitting the wall. And I hit a point where I thought I could not take another stroke. I could not deal with one more ocean, you know, huge ocean liner coming up with all its garbage around it and having the guys direct me where to go. Uh, physically, mentally, and emotionally, I didn't think I could take another stroke. And I literally talked to my body. Um, I had no clue. I, turned, as I found out on the way over in the boat that was taking us to the starting point that they, my friends, two other American young men who were teaching there with their families also, uh, had enrolled me in the annual race with the men from Robert College. So there were two, three women, two of them didn't finish, I finished. Um, I ended up coming in third in the race, but I didn't even know there was anybody, I didn't know where anybody was in the water. I, I was dead last, I was just trying to finish this. And ultimately I did, and I went to stand up, my legs collapsed, two men had to come down and help me out of the water. And for the rest of my life, I have not feared anything. Wow. <laughs> That's a great story. That is the story of how I learned to do that. So that when the men's crew coach at Princeton, when I went to ask him to help me start women's crew, and he stood there with his feet apart and his arms across his chest and looked me in the eye and said, there'll be women in this boathouse over my dead body. My knees shook, my <laughs> stomach tumbled, but I was able to summon the courage to quietly say to him, Pete, I didn't come to ask for your permission. I came to ask for your help. And when he didn't give it to me, I found an alternative way to go around and get it done. So I lay virtually all of my leadership development skills to that swim in Istanbul. Nice. 
how important was it to the early growth of women's athletics to have the specific kind of women that you had there? One, they were women who, by walking into Princeton, that had been all male all those years, were, were willing to undertake a challenge. But that's in general. But specifically, you had, you know, you had some early women athletes who were just completely driven people. Carol Brown, Kathy Corchione. We already right. talked about Margie and Helena. You know, I mean, the list goes, yeah, of course, the list goes on. So, I mean, yeah, how much did they make your job easier? And also, you know, you've spoken about the the success of the women's athletics teams in terms of how it impacted the overall success of co-education. It goes right back to what Amy said a little bit ago when she said, this is a team sport. This is a team effort. And that's exactly what it was. I think we energized each other. Um, most of the, of the initial women who came to Princeton, well, all women who come, all men and women who come to Princeton, they're, they're, highly, they, they're highly talented and they have strong abilities and strong motivation. And, and so forth and so on. But uh, the first group, those first group of women were there had been playing sports. They had, they had had opportunities already, whereas a lot of their uh, cousins, neighbors and whatnot perhaps hadn't had them, but they had. So they came with every expectation of being able to continue with that. And they knew they were only there for four years. They couldn't wait five years for the plan to work itself out. They wanted to play and they wanted to play now. I saw my role as, as a responsibility to just set the uh, create the environment where everyone in that environment could stretch and grow, including myself. And so we did it as a team. Uh, you talk about the ability of the athletes. I was also blessed to find a, a whole cadre of women, adult women, mothers, grandmothers in the, in the area in Princeton that I could draw on. I mean, I could spend the next two hours telling you the story of how Betty Constable became a, a coach. Mm -hmm. She resisted it for so long. I went to school with her son in high school. And, uh, and then anyway, I tried getting her right away into coaching. It took a long time, but look what happened. I mean, it was just a matter of putting the right people together at the right time, at the right place, and not only creating opportunities, but seeking opportunities. We did so well because we participated in a lot of national championships under AIW. And the reason that we did is because if you hosted, your team got to play in it. <laughs> that was how the AIW operated. And that was why we had the National Volleyball Championship and the National Field Hockey Championship. The National Field Hockey Championship at Princeton um, was all three divisions. We had for two weeks, a, a thousand young women playing field hockey on, a, on about eight, eight or nine fields all across campus. I stood in Jadwin Gin and I looked out over this array and wept. It was so exciting to see. Wow. And so th those were the kinds of things that the kinds of opportunities that we had to make happen. I was blessed and fortunate to have so many people who bought into the dream and wanted to see it happen too, and were willing to put themselves to do whatever was needed in order to make it happen. So it was probably um, the greatest experience and leadership opportunity that I ever was given. Yeah, amazing. And you did amazing things with it. And we're all really grateful for the, the bravery that you showed and the, the resilience and the spirit and the teamwork. And, and Amy, I think you wanted to jump in. Did, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about those early athletes, I think that's a real hallmark of um, women athletes at Princeton that has really 
you know, there's a through line, there's a thread that goes through the decades. And part of it is you had an extraordinary group of coaches who were uh, right. dedicated to Princeton, who knew how to recruit. And then you had admission director like a Fred Hargadon who understood the valuable role and those that came before him of uh, women athletes to make a, a student body um, uh, were, were, were very important part to the student body and um, really help kind of uh, make co-education successful. And then when I think about, you know, the, the bravery of uh, the, women, the early women athletes and what it took then, and then the, the bravery changes a little bit, right? I mean, the, the situation you're, you're, you're put in calls upon people to do different things. And I think about people like Karen Krahulik and Leslie Silverman in the early 90s who came out as gay to their teammates. That took a lot of courage to do that at a, at a time when coming out as gay anywhere on campus was, was not a very popular thing to do. It's probably not in the way to say it. I mean, it just wasn't done. And so the courage that the women, the women had, um, they also stood up for what they wanted. When they, things weren't going well, they let you know things weren't going well, um, as, as did the coaches. And um, so I think that kind of through line um, was really important. You know, Molly, I think about watching you as a soccer player and a, and a ice skater, uh, a hockey player, rather. I mean, there you were. Um, and we, we knew the times that you played ice hockey games in the mo Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings wasn't ideal, right? It took, although I think it was the schnapps and the uh, hot chocolate that brought the <laughs> Amy, this is on. a family show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there was wonderful uh, hot chocolate served at um, all the morning <laughs> matches on the weekend. Um, but we knew those times weren't I ideal, but, you know, we kept persevering and working and finally we were able to kind of get better times. Um, but I think that there was a lot of bravery and the voices of the women that played athletes uh, that were athletes at, at Princeton. I think it, it was pretty amazing. And they really, whatever was happening at the time, um, culturally or socially or intellectually, they really stood up. Yeah, I would say, you know, Jerry and I talk about this a decent amount. People have asked me many times, you know, why did you choose Princeton? And I've always been very clear about when, when I stepped onto campus and I was looking mostly at other Ivy League schools. When I stepped onto Princeton's campus, I, my identity was very much formed around my athletic um, sort of passion. And I felt like people cared about women's athletics. That was in 1987. And I think Marilee, you started that. Amy, you really continued it. I, I knew you cared. I knew Bob Meisler cared. I knew the people at Princeton, the students, I would go out to you know, social events as a recruit and everyone was asking the either soccer players or hockey players how we did that day. How, you know, how did they do? Did they score a goal? What was the outcome? They were at the game. I think that's the hallmark of Princeton athletics is that the whole community, we call it the team around the team, really right. cares about women's athletics. And, and I felt that as a 17 year old. My mother was sort of like, hey, you know, your sister goes to Boston College and there's a really nice school up in Cambridge and that would be really phenomenal if you went there. And she kept sort of, and I was like, no. From the minute I walked onto campus, I knew that Princeton was my spot because people cared so much about women's athletics, to be perfectly honest. All the schools were great academic schools and I was very committed to that, but I also just felt a different. And, I, and again, I think you two both had a very large role in that. Marilee, you in, the, in starting it and Amy, you while I was really there. So I thank you both for that. Uh, Marilee, I think you wanted to jump in. 
Yeah, I think there's a, there's another, talk, I'm talking about enlarging the circles again, and what Amy said reminded me of it. It wasn't only the wonderful cooperation that we had on campus um, from the male athletes, from the male coaches, from the people in the community and so forth, but, but that camaraderie, that teamwork went even further in those early days. Um, one of the most grim realities that I had to deal with was uh, the women's swimming team had an opportunity to go to the national championships in Spokane, Washington. I think it was around 1973. I'm not 100% sure of the date anymore, but somewhere it was early. It was in the early days. We had a male coach and AIW had a rule that you had to have a female um, chaperone if you had a male coach. Well, we had no money in women's athletics. I mean, because they didn't expect to be into the athletics business for five years. They thought they had a lot of time to save up, but but, and Ken was wonderful about finding money when things came up. But so anyway, long story short, we had five swimmers, um, four swimmers and a diver who were on that team. And interestingly enough, Cece Heron, the diver, was tapped to represent the United States at a diving meet in Moscow, Russia, the same weekend. We were going to Moscow, Idaho with the <laughs> other four swimmers for the national championships. And... Princeton's women's came in third at those championships. I mean, it was, a, it was a big deal for us, but the coach had to stay home and I had to take them. And two weeks before uh, I got a phone call from Yale, um, they had two swimmers and they couldn't afford, could I, could I be their chaperone as well? And I said, sure. The Rutgers called me two weeks before, could we chaperone two of theirs as well? So I went out with this plane full of kids that had never been on an airplane before and uh, to the national championships. I often joked about it because I said, you know, we spent so much money calling Bill Farley, our coach before and after every race, we could have bought him a plane ticket. But you had, we had to go through those things. We had to go through them. And we all, that camaraderie spread across the country. If any of us could do anything to help anyone else, we were more, more than willing to do it because when we all started out, um, I had to be a mentor before I had found one for myself. Right. That's just the way it was. But Princeton did that for me. Princeton created as much opportunities to stretch and grow as I hope we provided for the, for the student athletes to stretch and grow. And um, I mean, they had a leadership. Um, I, have you ever heard about, uh, I was trying to remember the name of the resort we went to. I'll think of it in a minute. Um, <clears throat> but they, they had a leadership conference. It was, actually run by Harvard University, it was, um, but it was actually conducted by uh, the Navy. And they sent us up to Sky, Sky, Sky Top, Sky Top in the Poconos, and 20 of us from Princeton, <clears throat> about four of us were women. Uh, we were all high level administrators and they sent us off for a week. And it was, it was my mini PhD for, um, for learning a lot of those skills and learning teamwork and team leadership and so forth. And that, that program then extended on campus for the next several years, but it was done on campus and in small, small spurts. <clears throat> in 1972, uh, when Title IX was passed, it was passed in June of 1972. And I received a phone call about mid-July uh, from the Office of Civil Rights asking if I would be willing to serve on the committee that was going to interpret the law and write the first guidelines. I had no clue, but I obviously accepted it. And uh, I had no clue what I was getting into. And they, it was all OCR lawyers. 
um, about 12 of them, and the male AD and me. And I wasn't 30 years old yet. And I, I spent the next 30 years trying to figure out why I was invited. And uh, it was an extraordinary opportunity to be part of that. But I think that um, I finally came to the conclusion that whoever put the committee together probably was a Princeton graduate and probably called back to Princeton and said, who's your women's AD? And that gave me a personal opportunity to stretch and grow that I wouldn't have had had I not been at Princeton. Yeah. No, so, so it works both ways. Yeah. No, absolutely. You talked a little bit about Title IX. Maybe, Amy, how do you think Title IX affected women's athletics in, in college? And you were, had a front row seat to it as an athlete and then obviously seeing it a few, a few years later when you were here as an administrator. Oh, it, it was transformative, right? I mean, it is, by law, um, schools had to provide opportunities for women. Now, I think it, it, it wasn't when they first started Title IX, it wasn't targeted for athletics. I think it was really thinking about medical schools, if I have my history right, and getting more women in medical schools. But it was transformative for, for athletics. Um, and But what it did, and Marilee, you're certainly more of a historian than I am, and Jerry, but it opened the door for opportunities so that there was kind of a baseline for what schools had to do and provide. What it didn't do, I mean, you can't, I don't think you can legislate attitudes. And while the legislation said you have to have, so, you know, certain representation, you've got to have so many sports and so, you know, I mean, so there's a real handbook, which was really amazing. And Marilee was a part of writing all that. Um, it was really amazing. What it didn't do is, is to legislate attitudes. And I think what, while it, we all took this wonderful opportunity to, um, bring women into the athletic world and provide equitable opportunity. Um, th there was, there has always been um, the hard work of changing attitudes and uh, building. It's almost like, you know, it's building blocks is getting one person who's on your side and then another, and then another, and then another, so that um, you can really have an equitable program. I mean, even in the early nineties, we were um, really working towards equity in access to facilities, right? So when did women's basketball practice, for instance? Um, if it was a rainy day, could women's fall sports come inside or did the men's sports have the priority? I mean, we were still negotiating access to facilities. We were still negotiating um, all kinds of access, even though Title IX was there. And so what Title IX did was to get it open the door, it gave us the law, it gave us the framework for so many women and men to step in to say, all right, now how do we apply this so we have equitable experiences for both men and for women? And I, you know, frankly, you know, we wouldn't have an WNBA if this wasn't happening. We would, if we didn't have Title IX, we wouldn't have professional soccer. We wouldn't have any of the, the wonderful opportunities that women now, I think, take for granted because all those things were fought for kind of brick by brick, brick piece by piece. Um, so I, I think it, it was a, it was transformative and gosh, look what it brought us to today. Awesome. Marilee. I think, um, you know, back in those early days when we were trying to work through that, I, I can, I remember uh, writing a, an opinion for the uh, USA Today and and, and I was talking about the need for little girls to have heroes too. And I think that was part of what uh, created the passion in so many of us in, 
enlarging uh, opportunities for girls and women in sport because you know, I, I was a sports person. I was an athlete. I was the Emily Goodfellow of East Strasburg University with my 12 undergraduate varsity letters. Um, but I had no place to go with any of that at the time. And, you know, my sports heroes, and I've said this to Jerry, my sports heroes were all guys, baseball players or basketball players. I had no, I had no one I could image after. And so it became very uh, important to, pe to people like me to create those images so that little girls could have heroes too. They could have people to whom they could aspire or who could inspire them. And um, that all became part of it. And I think that the journey that Amy was referring to in terms of the attitudes, I've always said, I, I looked at Title IX as the legal mandate and um, gender equity as the moral imperative. Um, I have spent 50 years of my life trying to be part of the team that helped to make the cultural changes that would allow those things to occur. I never thought it, 50 years later, we would not have achieved it yet. I truly believed within, in all of my heart and soul that maybe after 20, 35 years, um, the legal mandate would no longer be necessary because the, the moral imperative would be part of the culture. I think we're a long way down the road from where we were without question. Uh, I haven't lost any of my encouragement about it, but I, I've spent the last 20 years after retirement um, doing um, witnessing in court cases for Title IX. And the stuff that's happening should not still be happening yet it is. Um, you know, we, we mentioned Michigan State. I have to hastily remind everyone that, that they didn't hire Larry Nassar until two years after I left Michigan State. But... To find things like that occurring in sport, in the sport world for girls and women today is just soul wrenching to me. It absolutely is. There's just no other way to say it. Yeah. Amy, I remember, uh, I remember my first uh, event meetings that were in what used to be the conference room on the, on the mezzanine, which long ago was converted to offices. But right. I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember two things about the first one. One was that there had been a women's soccer game at home and nobody could find the game programs. And so the, the whole discussion was, where are we gonna put the game programs? Nobody could find the game programs. And then somebody said, also there weren't enough of them. And I was like, well, if nobody could find them, how do you know there weren't enough? But <laughs> the, other, the other thing I distinctly remember is my first ever event meeting in Princeton was, who was gonna start the clock before the women's game? And uh, it had been left up to you know, the team to start the clock. And, and I vividly remember you saying, we're not going to do that for the men. We're not going to do that for the women. And we had to have somebody go over there before the game to start the countdown clock. And when you talk about Title IX and you talk about equity and, and things like that, you know, you talked about start times and, and access to facilities. But I think it was attention to small details like that that I think bred a real culture of equity. And you know, I don't think that I don't think the women's soccer players ever realized that somebody from the athletic department then had to start going over to their games and start the countdown clock which is good that they didn't have to realize that, but they didn't have to think about that. But I think those are like a lot of the little victories that led to a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, the equity that exists. Yeah. And I, 
I would say that that, occur, that occurred many, many things that I inherited when I got here because of the leadership of Amy and Bob Meislick and obviously Mary Lee and Gary, that there were just non-negotiables. And they weren't because that's what the Title IX uh, ruling or law said, but it was because of the moral imperative and because it was the right thing to do. And right. there, there are a few things that I think the previous ADs and the administration did the administrations did that actually have allowed us to be so successful um, for many many years for all 50 years we've had a remarkably successful women's athletic program because of the little things one example is is that the friends groups are male and female friends groups and they share the dollars and they work together collectively between the men's programs and the women's programs and the coaches are are collaborate collaborators and teammates And that alone, and that was something that I, I'm not sure if it was Bob or Gary, but that was something that I, I will never change as I'm the AD because it really makes a huge difference. And people may not even understand that or know that. And, and they received pushback from some coaches and alums. You know, why is all the money that the men's programs are raising? Why does that money go to both programs? And both ADs, from my understanding, both said, that's what, the, that's what it is. So we're not gonna negotiate around that. That's how this is gonna go. Was that way from the very beginning? I mean, absolutely, you know, we had to make it that way. And I think that was one of Princeton's strongest suits from the very beginning. When they, when, when they, uh, Ken Fairman and John Conroy allowed me a lot of leash room when we were trying to figure out how to do this and how to go about it in those early years. And uh, they didn't have the money, they didn't have this, they didn't have that, but they didn't, they didn't have a big no button either. Let's sit down and figure out what we can do. And that made, a, that made a tremendous difference. But Jerry, you talk about how, you know, the small inconveniences were turned into victories. It was the big inconveniences that spawned the work to get to that point. It's, it's the kind of things that led to Title IX. I was coaching field hockey at Princeton. I took my, you know the story, Jerry, but I'll share it with the others. Um, I took both a varsity and JV team to a school in Pennsylvania that I won't name for a field hockey game. And I always had the women take nice clothing because we would stop at a nice restaurant for dinner afterwards. So when the game ended, the coach invited me into her office so we could chat while they were showering and dressing. And we were in there about three minutes and the manager came in to me and said, Miss Dean, can you, we can't find the towels. So I turned to our host coach and I said, can you tell us where the towels are? And I watched the red come up in her face and I thought, oh boy. And she said, we don't provide towels for our girls. I said, well, do you provide towels for your boys? Can we have someone go in and get us some towels? Well, I don't have any access to that area. And I had 22 young women had to pat themselves dry with paper towels in order to get dressed and go out to dinner. That's what spurred Title IX. I I hired a basketball coach at Princeton who had to sweep the floor before she could play on it. That spurred Title IX. That spurred the kind of passion that was needed to get on that path. So when I look at some of the little things today that are still problematic, that's why I still have hope because uh, the major things are not an issue. I've often said over the years, if, if if people hadn't fought Title IX for so long, the money they spent fighting it in court would have created equity in every college and university in this country. And we've been done with it. But I think the sociologists are correct. It takes three generations to create that kind of, of cultural change. And I think we have to be close because I started it and I do have eight grandchildren. <laughs> and that's the third generation. So it must be coming. Here we go. Right? 
Yeah, no, that's awesome. You know, maybe pivoting a little bit, we only have a little bit of time left, but you know, was there, a, Amy, and I think you probably were here um, at different inflection points, you both were, but was there, a, a, in your mind, a specific inflection point in Princeton athletics where things changed or were the women pretty consistent from the early 70s, you know, through now? And Amy, you've had a front row seat um, for pretty much all those years or for many years. Was there a moment in time where you're like, wow, women see themselves differently as athletes or something's changed in the air? Or do you think that we've always just had this um, sort of attitude among the Princeton female athletes? That's a, such a good question. And I'm guessing if you ask that to any woman athlete during that time, you'd probably come up with different, different answers, right? Because it was from their perspective. For me, what I would say is that kind of success begets success. And so as teams became... As, as there was this an amazing cadre of women coaches um, and some men coaches that coach women's sports, like um, certainly Glenn Nelson and, and um, Peter Farrell and Peter Farrell in track and field. These, these guys were great. And then there was this a, a, a amazing group of women coaches. And as they recruited really phenomenal athletes, whether it's a Grace Cornelius in swimming or a Molly Marcoux in soccer and, and ice hockey, right? Uh, Tara Christie in softball, Jen Babbitt in softball. I mean, you, um, and these teams began to be successful. There became a, a feeling and a stature, or I think at least what I felt as administrator around pride about having success as an athletic program and as athletes and viewed on campus as fully a part of, not separate from campus, but fully a part of the uh, campus experience. And that, I, I think it just, it continues to grow. And, and, you know, it takes leadership, not just from the top. And I think when I look at the contributions of Bob and of Gary, and now Molly of you, you've kind of kept this line and have kept raising the bar. It also took leadership from the central administration. You know, yeah. I think, you know, um, here's, you know, Bill, Bill Bowen was a tennis player, right? He was a collegiate tennis player. He loved to play tennis all his life. He valued women's athletics, and that really came through. Um, that started at the top in terms of what the value of that experience was going to be like. And there were times when there were real financial crush, uh, crunches, and we went through some really tough times um, in the in the um, '90s around um, the sport of wrestling. I'm delighted that they're so successful, and it's it's such a great program. Um, and today and but I think that you know it, it takes really strong leadership across the university to make things happen and Princeton has that I think there's great pride in the programs and in great pride in the success um, of the students and the student athletes and as women then graduate from Princeton and go on in their lives look at the things they're doing I mean it's really really amazing and when um, she roars um, this was a couple of years ago the alumni program she roars and all the women athletes that came back and what they're doing now and um, the kinds of um, teammates they had and their experience at Princeton, I mean, it's, it's with great pride. So hats off to you for continuing that leadership of the program, Molly. It's really, really fantastic. Well, I appreciate that, Amy. And believe me, I appreciate when you are so engaged still and you send me texts all the time after big wins and uh, you're following all of our sports, our men's sports, our women's sports, and that connection and community is really, really important. And honestly, that support and that mentorship from you along the way has been, been great. 
Marilee, same question a little bit to you. I mean, being a student of women's athletics and, and a historian, do you, do you notice any difference in the generations and just the way women viewed themselves or their identity around athletics or anything that you studied that's, um, you know, sort of stood out to yeah. you? No question. Uh, no question. Uh, Amy's, Amy's words were absolutely correct. It was transformative. I mean, I, I, I think I uh, talked a little bit about the struggles that I personally felt as I was going through teenage years and when it wasn't so acceptable for girls and women to be athletes. And, and I worked through it. Other people who chose to this field also had to work through it. And I began to watch the changes. It was post-Title IX. It, and I think the, the, the camaraderie and the, and the feelings of pride really do go back to the early days at Princeton. I've often said, um, I think that probably the greatest catalyst for changing attitudes about co-education was due to the women athletes. And I say that because in those, particularly in those early couple of years, there were so few of us women around. I was sent out on the speaking tour a lot and I would speak to alumni groups, which I love to do. And when I, I said earlier in this program, I found it was the group that graduated in the 50s that were the toughest ones to get by. The, you know, the, the crew cut white buck people, they were tough to, to turn around. Everybody from 1960 on wanted co-education. Everybody prior to 1950 wanted co-education. We had to sell it to the ones in the 50s. Um, but the women athletes were so successful from day one that um, the, the response among the alumni was incredibly strong. We all understand what it means to be a fan. You like to be attached to winners in one way or another. It becomes part of your persona to say, I knew, or I saw, or I watched, or whatever. And uh, so the, the young women athletes themselves won people over, as did those early coaches. Um, they also created a bond among the women themselves who, and we made sure they understood this, that they were setting the path for their little sisters ahead and that we had to do this very carefully so that we didn't, that we did it the right way. So those were early conversations. I can remember, um, second year I was there that we had women's athletics. I began having corporate recruiters come to my office in the spring wanting to talk to our top women athletes. And I made a very big mistake and I only made it once, but um, I started saying to them, well, what majors are you looking for? They didn't care what major she was. They knew that because she was a student athlete, she understood leadership, she understood teamwork, she understood uh, cleaning up, you know, getting up after you've been knocked down. And we went through all of those things. And I, I called a staff meeting the very next morning of all the women coaches and I said, we're doing this wrong. We need to talk to our women student athletes about the, the, the treasure trove of personal skills that they are developing by doing this because that's what's going to carry them for the rest of their lives. And we reshaped our whole program of dealing with the women student athletes in terms of what we were trying to educate them about. That, that in fact their sport was really a vehicle, not an end in and of itself. That's awesome. I think we call that education through athletics now, huh? It's, it's yes, all... I Oh, that's all right. of our all of our literature, all of our venues, you know, there was a phrase that that Gary coined, but um, we believe in it so deeply. And even during 
this pandemic, that's the value that we've leaned into in every way. I mean, still through this experience when we might not be competing right now, but our coaches are educating through their athletic platform every day. So our last question is normally, you know, what you just answered, Marilee, which is, you know, what do you think is the greatest value of sports for girls and women? So you answered that. Before I go to Amy, and you're going to get the last word here, Amy, uh, on that question, I will say, though, interestingly, Marilee, some of our greatest um, supporters of, of women's athletics are alums from the 50s. So I've developed... Yep. Some really fun and amazing. It works. Yes. I mean, some amazing people, men who have been huge supporters, both financially as well as, you know, just uh, morally um, of women's athletics. So the work that you did, I think, you know, made a huge impact. And I'm really grateful for the support that I received from them, but also for your relationships at that time. And, and really the women who stepped up and were so successful. So all a good story. But Amy, I'm going to give you the last word on what do you think, again, is the, the greatest value of, of sports for girls and, and for women? Well, I, I mean, Marilee said it, right? Um, I, I also think that, you know, athletics is really the emotional heartbeat of any institution. And so not only does sports, is sports kind of te teach us about life, right? It does teach us how to succeed, how to work, um, good, a strong work ethic, how to deal with fa failure. Um, you know, a lot, it's, it, it's, the, it's the life laboratory through an activity, right? Um, what does competition mean to people? I mean, everything we do in, in our lives has some degree of competition. And uh, it teaches a lot about how to compete. And I'll say how to compete gracefully, too. I mean, you know, there, there's a way to compete where you're really divisive. And there also, there's also a way to compete, which is, is graceful. Um, and I, I, David Henry was a, um, an amazing track athlete from Britain. And he said something in a graduate course that I took. And he said, you know, the first time he went to the Olympics, he was a steeplechase. He said, um, I really hope that all my competitors had their very best race because I knew I would have my best race. And that's a graceful athlete, right? You want your competitors to have their very best game so you can rise to the challenge and have your very best game with your teammates. And that's what life is. And that's what sports treats us. We want to have our, be our very best in the best times and in the most challenging times. And I can't think of a better laboratory than um, athletics and recreational athletics and club sports, particularly all the, all the different kinds of ways that we um, compete. Um, it's a wonderful laboratory. And I think Princeton does it better than anyone else um, around. And it was a privilege um, to be a part of that athletic program. And it's a privilege now uh, to watch a current crop of, uh, of athletes compete. And I can't wait to uh, have the pandemic over and uh, watch them on the court and on the field. Oh, and I, you know, having said that too, kudos on Princeton's reaction to dealing with the pandemic. Spot on, absolutely doing it the right way. Uh, I wish that some of your sisters and brethren had followed your lead a little better, but kudos, all kudos deserved and earned on that score. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Uh, mostly thank you for paving the way for, for all of us who've had the great privilege of being a, an athlete at Princeton um, and for your leadership for women's athletics in general over many, many uh, years and decades. Um, we're really grateful. This has been a really fun conversation. Jerry's giving me it's time's up. I could go on and on forever um, talking after the podcast is over, but thank you again. And Jerry, any last words? 
Uh, no, I think you summed it up uh, very nicely. It's just been great to have both of you on. Uh, this is a great conversation. Yeah, I was, I was trying to keep Molly updated on the time. And every time I looked up, I'm like, wait, it's been five more minutes. It's been 10 more minutes. <laughs> so uh, just want to thank both of you for joining us. And, and again, just to echo Molly, thank you for everything that you've done for uh, women's athletics at Princeton and, and for the university in general. You're so here. Ford Family Director of Athletics, Molly Marcuse-Saman. Thank you to Marilee Dean Baker and to Amy Campbell. I'm Jerry Price. Thank you for being with us here on the First 50 Podcast. Molly and I will be back in two weeks with another edition. In the meantime, thank you for your support of Princeton Athletics. You've been listening to The First 50, a podcast celebrating the human stories behind the first 50 years of women's athletics at Princeton. We invite you to visit goprincetontigers.com slash 50 years to submit your favorite memories and for more great content, including photos, feature stories, book excerpts, and the complete First 50 podcast series. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.